0: James 2, verses 14 to 26, you'll find that on approximately page 854, 855. In 1994, Kevin Carter, who's a photojournalist, won the Pulitzer Prize for feature photography. And his, his winning photo was a, was a heart-rending photo that was taken during the Sudanese famine in the 90s. It was of an emaciated child crawling toward a famine relief center under the hard stare of a watching vulture. And and that image drew international attention to the horrors of, of the famine in Sudan in the 90s and also to Kevin Carter's career. And so people started asking Carter the question, what happened to the poor child that you photographed? Did you do anything to help the dying child? And Carter painfully admitted that After taking nearly 20 minutes to frame the shot, he had simply walked away. Now, I don't want to be too quick to judge him based on that limited information. Perhaps the immense suffering that he witnessed in Sudan made him completely numb and overwhelmed. Perhaps there were more starving children than he could possibly help. Yet this situation, from the little we know of it, very much pictures what James is getting at in today's passage. As James points his finger at those who claim to believe in Jesus, and he says, don't tell me what you believe. Don't tell me about the problems in the world and how Jesus is the answer. Tell me what you're doing about it. Because faith without deeds is dead. James isn't writing here as a theologian. He's he's not debating abstract theology. No, James is writing as a pastor. He's, he's addressing real people, some of whom he no doubt knows, and he's writing to various communities who follow Jesus, who, who like him, are fellow Jews. They have come to believe that Jesus is their Messiah, and, and James is aware of struggles and of tensions and of issues that these communities are dealing with, and, and so he writes this letter to them. As we saw last Sunday, one of the major issues which was affecting the churches that James is writing to was the, the tipped economic scales of that day. You see, their economy was largely based on agriculture. And at that time, you had a small number of, of aristocracy, of, of wealthy families who owned most all of the land. And and there were vast numbers of peasants who worked that land, who toiled in the sun all day, every day, for very little pay. And and so with little hope of ever being able to afford afford and own their own land, with little hope of, of ever escaping from grinding poverty, where they were one serious illness or one broken bone or one accident away from utter devastation, And so as James writes to those who follow Jesus in this kind of world, he he teaches them, he challenges them about how things are different in God's kingdom. About how Jesus' followers are to handle such economic disparity and, and privation. Specifically, James urges in today's passage, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Right? (laughs) James is making the point that faith without deeds is dead. That it does no good to talk about what you believe if you don't actually walk the talk. If you don't actually put your money where your mouth is. Now, it might be tempting to think that that's what we mainly need to take from today's passage that faith without deeds is dead. That the the example that that James gives here of a brother or sister who's cold or or hungry is is just that an, an example, just a sermon illustration to make the more important theological point. But if you read the book of James, you quickly realize this isn't just a random illustration. As we saw last Sunday, James addresses again and again the topic of poverty and riches in his book because this was a huge issue in James' day. And so how we treat those we we see in need is exactly the point that James is making here when he talks about faith without deeds being dead. Sure, the theological principle applies to many other situations, like whether we cheat on our taxes or our spouse's whether we're kind to our family or our friends, whether we're good employees at work, that all applies as well. But don't miss the specific application that James gives here, which is how we treat those we see in need, especially when they are also a follower of Jesus Christ. So here's what James is saying. If you claim to believe in Jesus, But you can't be bothered to help out someone else in God's family who is in serious need. Your faith is dead. It's not real faith. Not the kind of faith that can save you. But how can this be? We just spent all spring and summer in Galatians. Where Paul beat it into our heads and into our hearts that we're saved by faith. Not by works. Not by what we do we saw again and again that whether God accepts us or not, whether God considers us righteous, considers us to be in a right relationship with God, is based on faith in Jesus Christ and not on how well we obey God's laws. So how can James turn around now and say in verse 24 of our passage, a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone? Is this a contradiction? I mean, listen to the contrast, you doubters, between James and Paul. Paul, Galatians 2.16. We are justified, counted as righteous, by faith in Christ Jesus and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And then James, chapter 2.24. A person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. Paul says faith. James says works. They're both in God's words, and they seem pretty contradictory. What should we do? I know. Let's just take the one we like better and ignore the other one, okay? <laughs> actually, I've got a better idea. Let's take them both seriously and see if we can reconcile them. Because actually, we can. Because I think as we'll see this morning, what James is actually helping us avoid is a problem we can fall into if we misunderstand Paul. And so we need James. We need James to, to help us uh, not distort what Paul is saying. And, and that's why I thought it would be good for us to have a good dose of James this summer after spending a few months looking at Paul in Galatians. Now, the reason I don't think there's a contradiction between James and Paul is because James is addressing a very different situation and a very different challenge than the one Paul was addressing in Galatians. Paul was addressing religiously elitist, judgmental Christians. They, they wouldn't accept the, the pagan Gentile Galatians as part of their church unless the Galatians cleaned their religion up and started acting a lot more holy. And to this, Paul says, no. What gives us our place in God's family isn't our religious pedigree or our religious performance. It's the grace of God alone, brought, uh, bought for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. All we have to do is put our faith in Jesus, and anyone can do that. God accepts everyone, Jew or Gentile, who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, and so we better accept them too. But now James comes along and says, Ah, but don't misunderstand Paul. He, he says we're accepted by God because of our faith, but, but what is faith really? Faith is not just an intellectual idea you agree with or that sometimes makes you feel sort of warm and peaceful inside. No, faith is the basis for your whole life and the way you live it. If you trust in Christ, you'll follow Christ. And, and those James is writing to need to hear this. Because some of them are claiming to follow Jesus, but, but they weren't following Jesus, Jesus' basic teaching. James is addressing a situation where everyone already thinks they're insiders, members of God's family. There, there's no argument about that. But the problem is, they're not acting like God's family. No, the rich members of the family are enjoying their riches while the poor brothers and sisters are going on suffering in poverty. And the rich shrug their shoulders and they say, well, that's just the way it is. You know, that's today's economy. Sorry, you poor. Sorry, you're suffering. I hope things work out for you. I really do. And James says, I can't believe it. And so he says to the wealthy followers of Jesus, do you know what that tells me? it tells me you don't really trust Jesus. You, you don't have the foggiest idea yet of what Jesus is all about. If you can look at someone who's hungry and not even properly clothed and, and, and you're, you're able to help, but, but you don't help, you don't really believe in Jesus at all. You don't have the kind of faith which, which makes you acceptable to God. No, your faith is dead. Let me explain why James reacts this way in in relation to the rich and poor. The early church very clearly understood that Jesus cares about the poor. And and they very, very clearly understood that the rich needed to be suspicious of their own wealth and needed to liberally share it with the poor. After all, Jesus, their Lord, had said, blessed are the poor and warned, woe to the rich. And their Lord had said in Luke 12, Do not be afraid, my little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. All you have to do is is study the early church, and you quickly realize that this was Christianity 101. This was a key part of what it meant to follow Jesus. And so, for example, Chrysostom, one of the great preachers of the early church, once said in a sermon not to share one's wealth with the poor is to steal from them and to take away their livelihood it is not our own goods which we hold but theirs and cyprian another early christian leader wrote a, a manual of of what should be taught to new christians who were learning to follow jesus and he writes in this discipleship manual break your bread to the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house if you see the naked, clothe him. Discipleship 101. And this is how the early Christians lived. This is why they got the notice of their pagan neighbors. Because the Greeks, the Romans of that time, had very little interest in helping those in need. But, but the Christians lived differently. They, they cared for each other. They reached out generously to their neighbors. When a plague struck a town and everyone fled, even the doctors, it was the Christians who stayed and nursed the sick. Some of them dying themselves in the process. When a famine struck, it was the Christians who who shared their food. It was the Christians who visited the prisoners and who took in the orphans because they understood that this is what it means to follow Jesus. And because they lived this way, they were utterly different and attractive to their neighbors and, and people were lining up to join them and to get to know this Jesus who had taught them to live this way. This is why James says very simply in chapter 1, verse 27, we've looked at before, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This kind of action, this kind of lifestyle was routinely taught in the early church because it's what Jesus taught. And so James says, for you to ignore this means you don't really believe in Jesus. Now, now this may come as a shock because, unfortunately, caring for the poor is no longer normal in evangelical churches. Because to be quite honest, we're not reading our whole Bibles. Part of how this has happened is that back in the early part of the 20th century, a split took place in the Christian church between the so-called fundamentalists and the so-called modernists. The modernist Christians, the the liberal Christians, became less interested in spiritual salvation, and they came to focus predominantly on physical salvation, political salvation, bringing peace to the world, caring for the poor, working for justice. And in response, the fundamentalist Christians doubled down on the spiritual, on evangelism, on the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ, But in the process, in reacting against the modernists, the fundamentalists did what we too often do. They threw the baby out with the bathwater. They focused on preaching about salvation and saving souls, and they criticized the liberals for just focusing on physical needs. And so the conservatives stopped caring about physical needs themselves because that was too liberal. And so sadly and tragically, the fundamentalists of the early 1900s handed down to evangelicals who came after them a Christianity which had all the right doctrine, but which in practice, James and Jesus probably would not recognize as fully Christian. And in the past few decades, the church has been trying to recover the fullness of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because in the Bible, you care about the poor. Because God cares about the poor. And so it's what his people do. It's one of the most basic ways that you live out your faith in the Bible. It's as basic as going to church. You care about those in need. That's what it means to be a Christian. And yet, even back in James' day, evidently, there was a temptation to cut corners here and to overlook those in need. After all, as soon as we get a little extra money, there's so many things we could do with it. And there's a temptation to say, well, I have faith, I believe, I'm good with God. Helping the poor, that's sort of optional, and I'm just not getting around to it right now. That's for somebody else. And that's what James is is challenging here. Verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Or, you have deeds, I have faith. But James says, you can't pull the two apart. (laughs) Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. If your faith doesn't result in deeds, it's not really faith. And then James goes on in our passage and elaborates to, to drive home th- this important point. He, he tells us five things that are wrong with faith that doesn't have deeds. First, he says, such faith is useless. Twice in verses 14 and 16, he asks about this kind of faith. What good is it? What good is it? In verse 20, he says, it's useless. It's useless. Such faith won't feed the hungry. It won't clothe the naked. It won't make the world a better place. It won't give the world a compelling, attractive taste of what the life Jesus offers is like. What good is it? I'll tell you what good it is. It's it's good for people who are more concerned about their own priorities than Jesus' priorities. It's good for people who want to be comfortable, who want to pursue the American dream, who want to live for themselves and not be bothered by the problems of anyone else. Faith without deeds is good for those kinds of people. But if that's the kind of life that you're after, then Jesus is not your guy. Jesus is not your guy. Because given what Jesus is all about, that kind of faith that doesn't have deeds is useless, James says. Which leads second to the point that faith without deeds is incomplete. Verse 22. Faith without deeds is stillborn faith, aborted faith, failed faith. It's faith that gave up halfway, faith that never quite got there. I like the way Frederica Matthew Green, who's a writer, puts it. It's one of those truths that run out of gas halfway home. In verse 22, James says, faith and deeds are supposed to work together. Faith is supposed to result in deeds. That's the point. Faith is supposed to change lives. It's supposed to change the world. Isn't that what Jesus came to do? And so third, faith without deeds is dead. James says, like a body without a spirit or without a breath, spirit and breath are the same in the Bible. Chris Wright, the Old Testament Bible scholar who took over John Stott's ministry after Stott's death says, how do you know there is a life or any life in somebody? Check if they're breathing. No breath, no life. Then he says, no obedience, no faith. Faith without works, as James would say, is as dead as a body without breath. Feel the breath and rejoice that they're alive. See the obedience and rejoice that they are believers. And then he quotes John Stott. Although we cannot be saved by good works, we also cannot be saved without them. And so forth. James adds, faith without deeds is demonic. Demonic. It's the kind of faith that demons have. James points out in verse 19 that even the demons believe in God, but all they do is shudder. Faith without deeds is actually evil, according to James. It's evil very often because it's masquerading as something that it's not. It's advertising to be something, but it's not actually being that thing. You you may have heard the line by Catholic theologian uh, Carl Rahner, who this line was popularized by DC Talk and others. The number one cause of atheism today is Christians. Those who proclaim God with their mouths and deny him with their lifestyles are what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Faith without deeds is demonic. It has caused untold numbers of people to look at the lives of Christians, to look at the church and say, "If that's what Jesus is about, um, no thank you." Or faith without deeds also gives church folk a false sense of security. I believe in Jesus, I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm good. John Piper says it this way in his classic book, Desiring God. He says, Drunks on the street say they believe. Unmarried couples sleeping together say they believe. Elderly people who haven't sought worship or fellowship for 40 years say they believe. All kinds of lukewarm, world-loving church attenders say they believe. The world abounds with millions of unconverted people who say they believe in Jesus. Now, maybe Piper's overgeneralizing here. Maybe he's being too judgmental. But he's got a point, right? Faith without deeds gives lots of people a false sense of security that God accepts them when in reality they don't have the kind of faith the Bible is talking about at all. And so we come to our fifth point that James makes about faith without deeds. It can't save anyone. Verse 14. The kind of faith which doesn't turn out to have deeds isn't the kind of faith that saves people. We might call it faith, but it's not the same thing as what the Bible talks about when the Bible says we're saved by our faith in Jesus. Isn't that what James says when he gives the two examples of Abraham and Rahab from the Bible? First, Abraham. Paul said again and again, if you remember the book of Galatians, that we should have faith like Abraham had faith. And James points out, yeah, I agree. And look what Abraham's faith did. It, it changed. It transformed Abraham's life. It led him to places he never thought he'd go. It, it caused him to obey God radically in ways he probably never thought he would. Abraham's faith acted. It worked. It had deeds. Then it's as if James says, well, I realize Abraham's shoes are awfully big shoes to fill. He's pretty intimidating. So let me give you an easier example. Let's try a pagan prostitute instead, Rahab. Is she more on your spiritual level? Well, even her faith was worked out in practice. If you know the story of Rahab, you know that she risked her life. She hid the spies who came to her. She sheltered them from the authorities. She begged them to spare her life and to include her among their people. Even Rahab is an example that that faith has to work itself out in practice, or it's not real faith. It's not the kind of faith that the Bible's talking about that can save you. I've got got to quote the reformer Martin Luther at this point, because this is the guy who rediscovered the Apostle Paul for the Christian church. The book of Galatians, the book of Romans. He was the passionate uh, Luther was the passionate and fearless cheerleader for the doctrine that we are justified by faith, not by works. And yet Luther says in his commentary on Romans that the faith that saves people is a living, busy, active, mighty thing. And so it is impossible for it not to do works incessantly. So do you hear what James is saying? For our faith to save us, it has to be alive, not dead. And living faith is faith that acts itself out in the way we live our lives. Now let me just add two caveats before we close. First, our faith doesn't have to be perfect to be real and alive. James isn't talking about perfection here. And some of you who are perfectionists who probably least need to hear the sermon are completely overwhelmed by it right now. You're wondering if you're still Christians. (laughs) Um, James isn't talking about perfection here. Abraham wasn't always perfect, right? (laughs) He had his doubts. He had his stumbles. So did Jesus' own disciples. But James is talking about a faith that is alive that is growing, that's acting itself out, that's growing in obedience, and specifically a faith that expresses itself in helping those in need, right? Second, by stressing that faith works, that, that faith does stuff or it isn't faith, let's not go to the opposite extreme, which Paul has been trying to rescue us from through the book of Galatians, And let's not think that it's actually our deeds or our works that make us acceptable to God. It's not our works. It's our faith. It's our faith, our trust in Jesus that saves us. It's just that how do we know if we have real faith? Well, if we have, we're going to live it out. It it will totally change the way we live over time. And specifically, James says, it it will change the way we help the poor and those in need. So question as we close do you have faith is it alive does it lead you to do stuff as jesus directs you does it lead you to to follow jesus let me close with a story my friend and former mentor daryl johnson tells this in his book on preaching he says you're not feeling well so you go to the doctor she checks you out and because she's so competent she immediately diagnoses the problem and prescribes the cure Here, she says, take these two pills uh, once a day. So two pills a day. Don't eat any more candy bars. (laughs) Eat three kinds of vegetables every day and walk a mile a day. Got that? And you say, yeah, that sounds reasonable to me. Thanks, doc. On your way out of the office, you turn to the receptionist and say, isn't she good? She is the greatest. She is such a good doctor. She makes me feel so cared for. I'm glad I found her. Glad my insurance takes her, or she takes my insurance. And then you go home, and the next day you only take one of the two pills. You, you sneak a bite of a Snickers bar, you eat only two of the three vegetables, and you only walk half a mile. Th- this is good enough, you say, besides, I know myself better than the doctor does. You conti- Some of you have done this. <laughs> you, you continue this way for the rest of the week, and at the end of the week you return to the doctor's office for your follow-up, Good morning, she says. How are you feeling? Not so well. (laughs) Oh, dear, I'm surprised. What I prescribed usually helps. Did you do what I said to do? Sort of. (laughs) Sort of? What does that mean? Well, you know, sort of. Did you take the two pills each day? Sort of. (laughs) I, I, I took one each day. One? I told you to take two. Yeah, I know. Well, did you knock off the candy bars? Sort of. Sort of? (laughs) Yeah, I snuck a bite of Snickers each day. I said no bites. Yeah, I know. Tell me, do you want to get well? Of course. I wonder. (laughs) Did you eat three kinds of vegetables? Well, don't tell me sort of. Right, I, I only ate two kinds. Did you walk a mile every day? No, only half a mile. Then she says, do you trust me? Oh, yes, of course, you're the best. Yeah, I heard you tell my receptionist that. If I'm the best, why don't you trust me? Oh, I do trust you. No, you don't. How can you say that, Doc? Because you did not do What I said to do. So, question as we close What is Jesus asking you to do? And do you trust him? Let's pray. God, thank you for James. Thank you for inspiring him by your Holy Spirit to write these words to some early Christians who struggled with the same thing that we struggle with. Thank you that this word was preserved down through the ages as God's word to us, and that it still speaks to us today. God, you're, you say in your word that faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of God. And I pray that even this morning as we hear your word, that it would create and awaken faith in our hearts, real faith, living faith. And that that faith would change everything about our lives so that we as a community of people look a lot more like Jesus. Thank you for accepting us the way we are. Thank you for loving us so much that you're not going to let us stay that way. Amen.